This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This special episode of GT the Podcast is brought to you by Santin Pharmaceuticals Company. Microshunt is CE marked in Europe and approved in Canada by Health Canada, marketed under the trademarked brand name Preserflow. It is not yet approved in the United States and is pending PMA approval from the U.S. FDA. Welcome, my name is Michelle Lim and I'm a glaucoma specialist at the University of California, Davis, which is in Sacramento, California. We're gonna be talking about the MicroShunt, which is a controlled micro-incisional ab externo glaucoma filtration surgery device designed to drain aqueous humor from the anterior chamber to a bleb formed in subtenon space. The device is made from a highly biocompatible and bioinert material called SIBS. I'm here with two of my colleagues, Dr. James Brandt, who is also at the University of California at Davis and a glaucoma specialist, as well as Dr. Devinder Grover, who is an attending surgeon and clinician at Glaucoma Associates of Texas. Welcome to the both of you and thanks for joining me in this discussion. So I was wondering, Dr. Grover, if you could tell us a little bit more about the surgical procedure used to implant the microshunt. Of course, I'd be happy to, uh, happy to, Dr. Lim. Thank you for again for having me here. As you mentioned, it is an ab external procedure. And in the trial, we really tried to standardize the approach. And so it required a, a limited uh, fornix-based uh, conjunctival inc uh, incision. Uh, mitomycin C was applied with sponges, uh, 0 0.2 um, milligrams per milliliter for two minutes. Um, and then after that was done, then you, uh, there was a pre-established blade. You could also have used a 25 gauge needle, uh, three millimeters posterior to the limbus to make a small pocket. And when you look at the, the features of, of this, of this uh, micro shunt, it has these wings and that really fit in a pocket that you created that prevents uh, anterior migration. And then you close the conjunctiva, and and you know the study really uh, took a lot of effort to make sure that uh, that this approach was as standardized as possible. Dr. Brandt, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the early results of the clinical trial that was performed in the United States. Be delighted to. The patients were randomized three to one, and that ended up in a sample of 395 eyes with uh, the microshunt surgery and 132 eyes who underwent a standardized trabeculectomy. About two-thirds of the patients were uh, phacic and the remainder were pseudophacic in this uh, study. And these really did reflect the typical open-angle glaucoma patient that we all deal with in our uh, uh, clinics. Overall, 54% uh, of the patients and uh, Seventy-two percent of the micro of the trabeculectomy patients met the primary efficacy endpoint of a twenty percent or greater reduction at year one, without needing to increase the number of glaucoma medications compared to baseline. The mean pressures over time uh, were very comparable, and towards the end of the study, at the one-year data point, the average diurnal intraocular pressure in the microshunt group was 14.2 and 11.2 in the trabeculectomy group. The mean number of glaucoma medications were reduced to 
0 0.6 uh, average glaucoma medications in the microshunt group and 0 0.3 uh, medications in the trabeculectomy group. What is most interesting is the difference between the two groups in terms of adverse events reported uh, in the study. Recognize that the surgeons were all very experienced with trabeculectomy and had very good outcomes with their trabeculectomy uh, uh, surgeries. But even in the best of hands, uh, things like flat chambers, uh, hypotony, and so on were found uh, in the trabeculectomy groups. So um, bleb leaks, for example, were 9% or 9.1% in the microshunt group compared to 14.5% in the trabeculectomy group. Similar differences were seen in terms of cataract progression, loss of best corrected visual acuity, and most important were things like shallow anterior chamber, choroidal effusions, um, and so on that are the bane of the existence of uh, glaucoma surgeons that we hate to see shallow chambers and hypotony uh, shortly after these uh, surgeries. So Dr. Grover, what are your thoughts on the outcomes of this clinical trial so far? The thing I found most fascinating about this trial was it took on head-to-head -head trabeculectomy. And, and that, that's a bold and tall task. And, and trabeculectomy is without question the gold standard. And so I, I really, what was impressive about the overall theme of this trial was that it, it had the confidence to uh, to take on the king and um, and challenge our uh, the, what we most most people consider the gold standard but we all know that trabeculectomy has its faults what's interesting is that uh, you know there's a floor right so when you have a trabeculectomy you can get a pressure of six right you can get a pressure of 4 you can you can you can get low pressures some are desirable some are not desirable but when you have a standardized outflow procedure like the microshunt it really creates a different floor uh, and, and you're not going to get a lot of sixes. And so uh, I think, you know, some people would look at this data and say, wow, trabeculectomy did so great because their pressures were so much lower. Uh, but it's almost like uh, you just, you can't get that low with the microshunt. I mean, that's the purpose of it. There's an inherent nature of the microshunt to protect, to protect against hypotony. And, um, and so when I look at this data, I'm not looking at, oh man, you know, trabeculectomy beat this microshunt by three points because it's not 11, it's 14 millimeters mercury. I'm thinking, look at this data. I, if I had a patient with, that I think would be a good candidate for this with advanced glaucoma, and I think about ages and the idea that if I can get my patients with a pressure under 15, I can stop progression and I have a standardized outflow procedure that's efficient, uh, that is a lower risk of hypotony that can get me under 15. And, and if I can avoid doing a trabeculectomy, you know, I think a lot of times when you're looking at this data and you see we were, I think a lot of people were, were thinking that the numbers would be more similar. I, I just don't think it's a fair comparison because with the microshunt group, you're, you don't have the same floor effect. So the mean IOP is never going to get as low as the trabeculectomy group. So I think you bring up a lot of great points and, and thank you for speaking to that. One thing I've noticed about the results of the clinical trial is I don't think it truly captures the heartache that trabeculectomy can cause a patient and us as surgeons. 
Uh, one, because it's short-term data, and and two, because you know we're looking at um, hard data points and not qualitative descriptions of outcomes. And so, you know, I'm talking about those blebs you get that are avascular white that you know are going to leak at some point. Or I'm talking about patients who develop bleb dysesthesia and, you know, come into the office every day and complain about that foreign body sensation. Studies or clinical trials like this, you can't capture that in the data unless you specifically study it. So I'm glad you brought up the topic of patient selection and who this microshunt might be good for, because I want to move on to that in our discussion and ask the both of you, where do you see the microshunt fitting into your practice in terms of the types of patients uh, you might feel this is a good procedure for? Well, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, we can identify a variety of patients where the hypotony that is unpredictable but can definitely happen with trabeculectomy could be potentially disastrous. A good example is the young uh, patient with high myopia where we're terrified of causing hypotony maculopathy and uh, I we don't have data yet because only a handful of myopes at that level were included in this study. Similarly, an older patient who's on anticoagulants who uh, you're really worried of them developing choroidals after the procedure, where you want to protect them from hypotony and the complications, uh, the bleeding complications of that. Similarly, patients who have already had a trabeculectomy in one eye and have many of the complaints that Dr. Lim already described, and they're really reluctant to have a trabeculectomy again in what to them is their more comfortable eye that they see better with, and yet you know they're going to progress if we don't get aggressive. These are all scenarios where I think the microshunt will play a very important role in our uh, toolkit. Yeah, you know, um, now that I know this microshunt is in existence, when I see patients in my everyday practice, I, I see people who are kind of on the youngest side and, you know, for a glaucoma specialist, 50s, 60s even is young to us. Um, these are potentially people that are still working potentially in the prime of their life. And I think about offering them a trabeculectomy and I just don't want to do it. Because I think especially for a younger person who's still working age, who you don't want to, um, you know, saddle them with a burden of a lot of post-operative care, uh, I think something like the microshunt could be very helpful in this patient population. What do you think, Dr. Grover? No, Michelle, I think both you and Jamie, when you guys were talking, it made me just, I had I had two, two flashbacks of something that I think are so pertinent right now. One is, you know, as I mentioned, predictability of uh, and standard standardization of this procedure. Uh, but Michelle, you talked about the the patient's ability to go back to work. You know, when you when you have the risk of hypotony and uh, and you need the patient to be on limited physical activity for three, maybe four weeks, sometimes uh, that really in interferes with their lifestyle. And when you do when you have a predictable outflow pathway that has an inherent nature to protect against hypotony, uh, I feel more comfortable with the patient going back to work relatively soon. And they actually usually have a slightly faster visual recovery based on the studies in the, uh, you know, outside the US. 
But the other thing, Jamie, when you were talking, I was just imagining myself in the operating room and you know that moment that we all think about when we're doing a trabeculectomy, we've performed our scleral punch, we're about to perform an iridectomy, and the eyes open, and you know, and and that's the moment where you hope that your you know surgical assistant doesn't you know take extra long to hand you that suture. You're wishing you preloaded a couple of stitches, and that one you know five seconds, however long it takes to close that flap, uh, you know that over time I think wears on you, and and you're you're exposing yourself to some potential risk when the eye is that hypotenuse. And when you, uh, you know, when you perform the microstunt surgery and you have the maintenance of the anterior chamber, you know, when the anterior chamber stays formed, and you, it, I think it's a much more controlled procedure, um, that also I think is just provides overarching safety for the patient and um, and and efficiency in the OR and probably fewer gray hairs for me. I agree completely. Uh, my nightmare is when the patient starts to cough right at the wrong time when the eye is open. Dr. Lim, you have an interest uh, for many years over bleb morphology. Um, what do you think? Uh, you've looked at a bunch of these and thought from that standpoint, what do you think about the safety of these blebs? Yes. Um, so one of the things that struck me about the paper published by Juan Baye, uh, they, they talked about blebs, they graded blebs in their study, and they had this nice series of photographs of what uh, the blebs look like over time. And one of the things I noticed is the blebs seem to form a little bit more posteriorly um, on the eye than a typical trabeculectomy, which is right on the limbus, sometimes overhanging. And what struck me is the idea of how this could be beneficial in the long run. And so you picture an eyelid constantly blinking over a large trabeculectomy bleb and breaking it down over time and leading to those leaks that we all hate. But when the bleb is low profile and posterior, such as you know what I noticed in those photos, yeah, I just don't think you're going to get that kind of breakdown of the tissues. And hopefully, you know, time will tell. Um, Long-term results may show us that there may be less; these may be less prone to leakage. So I don't know uh, what you both have seen in your post-op patients. I would agree. I mean, I think the blebs look based on 30 years of doing trabs um, look like they're going to be safer and even to the point that in the high myope example i gave you it may be very possible to uh, use soft contact lenses imagine a high myope who sees extremely well using rgp lenses or even a soft lens they may very well be uh, able to safely use a contact lens where i would never promise that uh, in a trabeculectomy eye, and that's part of my preoperative counseling in high myopes that undergo trabeculectomy. Dr. Grover, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I think you guys are both dead on. Uh, you know, what, what I've always been struck by with, with, with glaucoma is, you know, the, the unpredictability of blood formation. And, you know, I, I tell my patients, the, you know, the same doctor can do the same surgery on the same patient on two different eyes and get a different outcome. And uh, I've been, you know, surgeries on, on patients both eyes and have had variable blood morphology um, in, in trabeculectomy as well as in the in, in different micro shunt procedures. Um, but I do think that the 
you know, the confidence intervals or, or the variability is, is, is slightly more narrow when you have a standardized procedure like this. And, and just given the, the length of this micro shunt and, uh, and how far back it opens up from the limbus, um, I, I think it does set the stage for that blab that Dr. Lin was talking about, the more ideal low posterior bleb that is less likely to have that lumboischemic nature. Yeah, if you um, look at the measurements of the sh the micro shunt, I think it's the the posterior or distal end is putting aqueous humor out roughly between six and seven millimeters posterior to the limbus, versus uh, maybe just two to three millimeters in a trabeculectomy. And flaps can be very unpredictable in terms of where the fluid comes out and scarring. So you can actually have fluid coming out after healing right at the limbus or a fraction of a millimeter back. And that's some of the inherent unpredictability that Dr. Grover was talking about, even done by the same, uh, same surgeon on two different eyes. This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. Yeah, I'm really curious. I wanted to throw out this question. What are what do both of you notice about the vascularity uh, appearance of these microshunt blebs, let's say early and later on uh, as you get out from surgery? You know, I, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. And the 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 blebs that we've seen after this microshunt obviously are the ones from the trial where you know we were using uh, 0.2 milligrams per milliliter of mitomycin C for two minutes with sponges. Uh, I was I'm not seeing that anterior avascular bleb. You're seeing more the the uh, the more low posterior type bleb. Uh, the amount of mito that we used uh, in the trial also I think protected us from having that horribly avascular just you know toasted conge area uh, because the losses were, were somewhat lower. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the Juan Baye study as well as some of the studies um, out of Canada uh, have shown, you know, improved outcomes as well as uh, similar safe blood morphologies while increasing slightly the, the dose of mitomycin C. So uh, I do think that uh, we are seeing these more predictable blood morphologies without that, that anterior ischemic appearance. That's interesting. So you mentioned dosing of mitomycin C. I'm curious about that. I know that um, Dr. Ahmed and Dr. Durr, two glaucoma surgeons from Canada recently published papers on a series of microshunt surgeries that they had done. And in one of the papers, I believe they pointed out that um, eyes that had been done with 0.2 milligrams per milliliter of mitomycin um, had a higher, I guess, a higher risk of failure than eyes that had been, uh, uh, had surgery with a higher concentration which they listed as 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams per mil. So what are your thoughts? I mean, you're both experienced trabeculectomy surgeons that use you know, different mitomycin doses for that surgery. I know that we used a fixed um, concentration for the clinical trial, but how do you see your practice evolving with the use of mitomycin in these, sh these shunts? Having been involved in numerous uh, clinical trials, uh, 
when you design these trials, you've got to choose something to standardize on. And the choice here was to stay with the 0.2 milligram per mil concentration. And so we can't go back and say, well, what would it have been if we have a higher concentration? That will, we will eventually, uh, I think, find a sweet spot uh, and all surgical approaches end up getting tweaked and modified uh, once they come onto market. But um, I think the 0.2 milligram as used in the trial is a great starting spot, but I think uh, doctors are gonna modify it, adjust it for risk factors and so on, as we already do for trabeculectomy. Nobody I know who does trabeculectomy does, uses the exact same dose uh, for trabeculectomy for every patient. And I think doctors are gonna learn to titrate with this procedure just, as, just the same. Interesting. How about you, Dr. Grover? Yeah, you know, uh, Michelle and, and Jamie, I, I credit the two of you for for helping us in this evolution of monomycin C use and 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 application. Uh, my partner Ron Feldman and I, um, I think a year and a half ago, two years ago, wrote a, a review um, on on the use of monomycin C in in filtration surgery, and it kind of uh, chronicled the the early stages of mito, the safety of it. Um, and how uh, the evolution over the past 10 years, 20 years has been, um, you know, away from away from sponges and being more comfortable with um, uh, with higher doses and um, and being more comfortable with uh, different forms of application like in, injection. And um, and, you know, Michelle, you showed a great uh, study that showed improved blood morphology with injecting mito. Um, in an in, intrabeculectomy. And, and that I think gave a lot of people confidence and speaks to what, what Dr. Brandt was talking about, which was, you know, we all start to uh, evolve our techniques. And, you know, you look back at the uh, beginning stages of this trial, uh, and and glaucoma was a different uh, a different beast back then. Uh, there was slightly um, much more careful with the use of mitomycin C, and and as Jamie pointed out, that we really wanted to err on the side of caution and and safety. Uh, and then now you see with the data coming out of uh, from Juan Baez group in the Dominican Republic and and like Ahmed and his colleagues up in Canada, they're really pushing much greater doses of mito and, um, and showing improved outcomes. So, uh, and that's what we reported in, the, in, the, in that article that we wrote. Um, and, uh, and I think we'll continue to see that, that we can with these uh, predictable micro shunts that provide uh, a more posterior shunting of aqueous fluid away from the limbus, you can safely apply mito as long as you're protecting the limbus um, in, in slightly higher doses than what were studied in these trials. Yeah, I think it's, it goes back to the Hippocratic Oath, at first do no harm, right? Yeah. And it goes to needing to standardize for science, but once it gets into the real world, you know, you learn clinically how to titrate things like mitomycin dose. I don't make a decision on the mitomycin dose I'm going to give during a trabeculectomy until the patient is under the microscope and I feel the con, see how mobile it is and so on. And I think we're going to evolve to have a similar clinical field, feel for the microshunt uh, and mitomycin dosing once we get experience with it in the wild. Thank you to both of you. I have um, some questions in a, a different direction here. What was it like for you to adopt this new technique? And 
I'll say from my own experience, when I uh, read about the what this was and what the technique was, I thought, you know, oh, okay, this is going to be easy. I'm so used to putting in glaucoma drainage devices and slipping those tubes in. And I found when actually doing the surgery, you know, it does, there is this learning curve and it, um, it is tricky and a little finicky to, to get that flow through the tube. So what uh, pearls can you share with me to, to help me put this into perspective? So when I did the training for the procedure as one of the investigators, I would say that I had the same attitude that you did. And I was even a little bit more concerned because in our wet labs, we used uh, porcine eyes as, as a surrogate. And I found that it was hard to um, place the microshunt using a pig eye in our wet lab. And I was pleasantly surprised that when I put it in uh, an eye, uh, in the in the real world, in the OR in a human, it was not as hard as I would um, that I expected. I would say that it's important, I think, for the eye not to be super high pressure. It's much harder to put it into an eye that's highly pressurized uh, once you've made the uh, the incision. What do you think, uh, Dr. Grover? No, I think I I agree with exactly what, you, what you've said. Uh, what I mentioned previously is. What I what I was comforted by on the um, before uh, this endeavor of starting in the trial was that I felt that the each individual step of the procedure, be it the pyridomy, be it the application of mito, the dissection, the the tunneling, and the conjunctival closure, all those I think are are, are known techniques in our bag of in our bag of tricks that we each individually could say in isolation that feels uh, that that's in my bag and I feel comfortable doing that so I, I don't think that uh, we were out, tremendously out of our comfort zone at each step you know the unique thing was the was the blade that the the, the that we were provided um, to perform that pocket uh, it can also be done with the 25 gauge needle uh, that was uh, like in Europe that's how they do it um, that's a more of a unique thing but it's a slightly similar technique to advancing a glaucoma drainage tube shunt. Um, one other, a couple of things that I thought were unique. I, I, I love the tip that, that, that Jamie mentioned. You know, your tendencies want to keep that eye firm. And um, if it is, it's a little more difficult to pass the, the micro shunt uh, through the scleral tunnel. The other couple of things uh, are number one, making sure you can see that little triple of aqueous coming out and, uh, and keeping the anterior chamber relatively formed so you can assess flow. Uh, and then two, one really technique I think is so key is when you're closing the conjunctiva, you know, you want to make sure you incorporate tenons into that closure, obviously, but also make sure that you're not incarcerating uh, the implant with tenons. You want to make sure that implant stay, lays flat against the sclera and you want to lift up the conjunctiva and the tenons over the implant um, so that it stays in one plane. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, you, uh, you all have... Uh, trained fellows, but I think more and more fellows are um, are moving away from knowing how to really be good closers of the conge. Uh, you know, you don't have to be as meticulous when you're closing the conjunctiva doing a glaucoma drainage implant as you do with the trabeculectomy. And I still think with uh, with the this micro shunt, you really need to still be relatively meticulous on, on appropriately incorporating tenons in your closure and appropriately closing the conjunctiva in a way to not get blood leaks. So I was going to ask one of you if you could describe what the special knife looks like. And I also have a separate question on when you pass the knife, 
do you do kind of like this two-step movement or do you try to smooth out the trajectory so that you enter the eye and the angle um, so that's not too shallow or not too deep? What's your, what's the mental concept here? I'll take a stab at that, so to speak. Um, the, uh, ne the needle knife is has a very narrow tip and then it has a wider area that creates the little pocket uh, for the wings of the implant to uh, go in uh, to, to lock in place and there's also a marker so you mark this three millimeters back from the limbus you start at that marked spot and I my personal tendency is as I pass it as I, uh, it reaches the uh, shoulders of the knife, I press down very slightly at the limbus to bend the track down a little bit so that the knife ends, enters the anterior chamber relatively flat parallel to the iris. I do, I do a slight uh, two-step pass. You wanna make sure this is, just like anytime you're inserting um, a micro shunt in the anterior chamber, any tube shunt in the anterior chamber, you wanna make sure you protect the cornea. So I do think that, uh, that it is nice to just um, have a slight, you know, lift up the, uh, the posterior aspect of the blade slightly anteriorly to, uh, to make sure that you're you know, parallel to the iris and well away from the cornea. Um, a very similar technique, I think, to inserting a, a glaucoma drainage implant. Too. Just one other tip in terms of preventing incarceration of Tenon's capsule that I've developed is that I use an iris sweep. Once I have the um, implant in the right place, I put an iris sweep posteriorly over the device and lift up so that I know as I pull conjunctiva and Tenon's forward, it is freely mobile and not getting pulled up into the end of the uh, tip. And I found that to be quite useful in preventing uh, Tenon's incarceration. Great, that's a, a great piece of advice. So we're gonna talk about a last topic and that is patient acceptability. So what I mean by that is, do, do your patients comment at all on, you know, the comfort level that they have in the early post-op period has, uh, do any of your patients um, ever share that information with you or um, notice anything, especially if you've had a patient that's had one type of surgery in one eye and then the microshunt in the other eye, like say they've had a prior tube or a trabeculectomy? Well, if you remember from the study, the patients were randomized in the operating room. And so I often had patients come in really nervous, having read on the internet about all the things that can happen with trabeculectomy and when they got randomized to the micro shunt and we saw them the next day there they would look at me and say that was a piece of cake compared to what i was reading about on the internet interesting how about you dr grover yeah it, it's funny jamie i just had a flashback to the to the trial and when they opened the envelope i had the same reaction i was hoping to get the uh, the microshunt envelope. But I do think that, uh, you know, when you look at these eyes afterwards, uh, they just, on post-op day one, uh, they just look, they just look um, a little bit, a little bit less calm, or less, less irritated. They look, they, their anterior chamber is quiet, their vision, they really hadn't changed usually from baseline. Um, and, uh, and they're excited to be able to go back to their normal activity. Some may not have anything to compare to, but as, as surgeons, we definitely can compare to what we see after a trabs or tubes. And, and, and I think that, uh, that the predictability provides us a lot of comfort. 
Yeah, I'd have to say also, I had a patient that had that was randomized to receive the micro shunt and uh, later ended up needing a glaucoma drainage device. And she said that, you know, glaucoma drainage device tube, the, it was just like such a big operation, a big recovery. And when I compare it to that other surgery I had, I just breezed through it. So I, I do think there is, you know, even though this is anecdotal, I think there is something to that. Well, so I think we've talked about a lot of high points regarding uh, both what, you know, the clinical trial data regarding these micro shunts and also everyone's personal experience with uh, being the surgeon to implant them. Well, thank you everybody for taking the time to listen to this discussion about the micro shunt. I hope hearing about the data and also these surgeons' personal experience with implanting it has been helpful to you. Mm -hmm.